literally cannot tell you how excited, I just can't convey how excited I am to be back. Series 4, gang. Welcome to Series 4 of Roots, Wings and Other Things. Now, I am <laughs> I'm surrounded, literally surrounded, by books and magazines and seeds. Because it has been, let me tell you, a whirlwind of activity in that garden. Um, there was so much to do in the house when I moved in just uh, a month or so ago that I just forgot about the garden. I thought, you know what? It's a huge plot, half an acre of overgrown grass. That's all there is. There's some trees at the back. It uh, looks a bit wild and ropey at the back, but but that's it. There's not even a fence. I can't even begin to think about all of the stuff that needs to be done in there. Anyway, the weather's turned a bit. Spring's here. Utterly glorious. Uh, so I've been out in a bit, and I'm loving every flipping second of it. Uh, I've got a notebook. In fact, <laughs> I've got one, two, three, four notebooks. And I've got uh, David Austin catalogues, some really old copies of Gardener's World, another seed catalogue. But, of course, really where this all starts and this, my interest has been piqued by finding this book here, Everyday Gardening by John Coots. And, and it was entirely accidental. I mean, I've collected lots of books over the years. I normally collect old books for one of two reasons, I suppose. One, well, no, maybe one of three reasons. One is entirely aesthetic. The spine of the book looks really nice. So I think, well, that looks pretty. I'll buy that. Number two, because the topic is of interest to me. So I've got lots of books on psychology, lots of books on uh, medicine, lots of books on magic uh, and sort of old puzzles. And not all that many on gardening. This is a very unassuming book. It's an old, fairly battered blue cloth-bound book. It's faded a little bit as well, and the spine is a bit scuffed uh, with... There's no dust jacket. And it just has gold lettering on the spine. Everyday Gardening, J. Coots, in brackets, Q. I guess because it was a gardening book, maybe, and because it was old, I bought it. I've never opened it. And uh, so I find out uh, it was published in 1931. John Coots was formerly curator of the Royal Botanic Gardens in Kew. And I thought, well, you know what? There's, an, there's a sort of similarity there. Um, in as much that my passion for gardening comes from my grandma. And she obviously, her gardening techniques were of a time. They, you know, before a lot of chemicals and pesticides, they were very much about make do and mend and you know there weren't the sort of huge variety of plants that we've got now there weren't the access to plants that we've got now and there weren't the sort of bizarre designs you know gardening as a um as an industry i suppose was nowhere near as complicated and big and and wide as it was now so i thought wouldn't it be cute to use this as my guide to kind of put to the test because gardening books are a bit like cookery books they they're just I mean, they're bloody everywhere, aren't they? You can... But we're obsessed. We can't stop, can we? You know, if I look over there to the kitchen, there are... I mean, there's a whole cupboard full of cookery books. And I'm as guilty as everybody else. I cook the same five recipes. In fact, at the minute, we're using one of those recipe mailbox things because life's a bit busy. Um, so when I get back from the States, I uh, will start cooking again properly. But same with gardening. I mean, I've got 
an entire shelf, two shelves, in fact, dedicated to gardening books. And I suppose the only thing that I'm learning by going through this book from 1931 is that pretty much nothing changes. The only thing you learn from buying new gardening books is somebody else's take on maybe a design or something. Um, but I'm not entirely sure we need a gardening book for that. Anyway, this has been surprising to say the least. But before I get on to this book, which you're going to hear a lot about over this series because I'm going to dip in and out, has a, a pretty complex contents um, and it's varied too. And it has encouraged me to think about areas of the garden that I didn't think about. So let me give you a real quick rundown of what I've got here in this garden before we go any further. So it's a rectangular plot off the back of this little lodge. Um, and it's half an acre. And it's all overgrown grass, apart from about a quarter of it at the back, which is wild. I would say woodland loosely because there are only one, two, three, four, five, six, seven trees and a big line, eight trees, sorry, and a big line of conifers. But it really is wild. There's bramble, there's comfrey, there's bluebells and dandelions and some little wildflowers I haven't identified yet. Some other big wildflower pockets that I can't quite remember what they are, but I'll know when they come up and see the flower. I should use my little plant app, but at the minute, an awful lot doesn't get done because it slips down to uh, in the, uh, to the bottom of a very long <laughs> list. Tons of nettles, lots of overgrown kind of sticks and twigs that have been cut back and chucked there that have started sprouting, some unidentified sprouty bits. It's wild. And just recently, I've mown a little path, a little windy path, from the edge of that where it gets really wild, all the way to the bottom, a little circle there, as small as possible, within some nettles, and I put a bench. And Mr. Adorable was moaning that there were too many nettles and did we have to have them? And I said, yes, nettles are compulsory uh, for a wild garden and also they are brilliant because as we spoke about in previous series, you can pick them up and you can chuck them in a watering can and mush them all up and they make amazing fertilizer. Uh, you can pick them up, leave them outside for a little bit um, or cut the roots up so that they don't root and dig them in. Um, brilliant sources of nitrogen. Um, and then we put a little bird feeder so we've got a lovely little area to sit and it is stunning. And I would be down there today if it wasn't quite so chilly. And I had the door open just now and then next, next door's dog decided he wanted to bark lots, which is fine, that's what dogs do. So that's about a quarter of the garden at the bottom. Coming forwards towards the house for about another quarter of the garden is a stretch of grass that is all right. Uh, I don't know why, there's a very fine line that is clearly defined that makes this a lawn. The, the, the grass is much less weed-free, it's shorter, it's obviously been cut. I suspect what happened is that over time, people just left the bottom of the garden because it was too big. They didn't know what to do with it. Um, I know there was rumblings from some of the neighbours were saying that some of the people before wanted to maybe build a house there. That sort of makes sense. You know, don't, don't do anything with it because we're just going to rip it up and put a house there. I'm glad they didn't, though, because it's... I just think that all those trees would have gone. So the area of garden that is just a lawn sort of decided itself that it should be a lawn. And I'm going to keep that as a formal lawn. Uh, I think there will be four paws joining this household uh, very shortly. So that will be a nice space for 
us to you know lay and roll around it'll be the only real space for us to have you know clean contact with nature either side of that the left and the right hand borders of those uh, of the garden of that lawn i've cut a really deep um so that must be about so it's a five foot digger bucket so it'll be five foot wide at its widest point um border uh, i had the digger scalp the grass away there's a bush that's sort of randomly a, a lanicera bush that's randomly quite far into the lawn so i've incorporated that into a deep border still gives us plenty of lawn in the middle um and then we've created a bund like a great big um wedge if you like a great big hill of all of the soil and grass that we scraped off the rest of the garden just to create um a little bit of security for the four little paws so that's gone up against the conifers or i should have said all along one side on the right hand side of the garden are conifers that have been butchered by whoever did uh, that um so they're i don't know maybe 10 foot tall and they're all overhanging and stuff, so I'm going to neaten those up a little bit. But the pigeons love them. On the left-hand side of the house, there is literally no border. Because apparently the people here before ripped out about 75 metres of conifers, including all of the, the roots and everything. Now, I'm not so bothered about not having conifers here, because conifers come with their own problems. Um, however, there was no need to rip out 75 metres worth of trees. You know, I'm not the biggest man of conifers. But you can do so much with them. You can plant rambling roses up them and other climbers. You can hide them. Um, you can, you know, drop the height and neating them. So anyway, that left me with 75 metres of um, of a row of, you know, open space. Uh, I didn't want to put a fence there, partly because I was quoted £6,000 and partly because it was this great big bit of wood, isn't it? So I planted uh, 200 hedge whips all along the left-hand side, all native mixed hedgerow. Um, and then if you come forward towards the house off of that formal lawn area there was another quarter of the lawn pretty much which was again just lawn but much more weedy like a ploughed field really divoty and up and down and um, I've had that all scalped with the digger because it was such a huge bit of spance I just couldn't bear thinking about doing that with uh, a spade and yesterday I was out there doing the final preparations for sowing and that will be a big wild flower meadow all native wildflowers with a little path mown through it that goes to a workshop i've had built and a little path that goes um to the main lawn so then then you can walk there into the woodland and then if you come forwards again the final quarter of the garden will be it was decking we've ripped that up i'm not a big fan of decking super slippy when it's wet um it was painted black which maybe even less of a fan of decking um, and it goes all mouldy underneath and stuff. So I've ripped that away. We're going to put a patio there. Nice deep border around the patio. that We can put things like um, Daphne and uh, Violet and lots of lovely scented bushes and flowers in there. And then to the right-hand side, because the, the lodge is like a, a dog leg, uh, so it gives that... There's a sort of a recessed area, and I've decided I'm going to create a gravel garden there with a little kitchen garden in as well. It extends a tiny little bit out towards an outside office space, and in front of that, I'm going to create a herb garden. Now, there is an awful lot of space. I'm looking out at a lot of mud right now, a lot of soil. Um, but, you know, I refer always at the minute back to John's book, uh, Everyday Gardening, and he's becoming a little bit of a hero of mine. And in the contents, I mean, it, I mean it's you know, 
everyday gardening for people that I think are extremely serious about gardening, nigh on a little bit obsessed, because there's an entire chapter dedicated to soils and their treatment, an entire chapter dedicated to draining and levelling, an entire chapter to manures and manuring, an entire chapter to garden operations, which include bastard trenching, I have no idea, I haven't even gone there yet, um, top dressing, staking and tying, etc, etc, beginning to sound like some sort of uh, BDSM manual. There's an entire um, chapter to weeds and weeding, how to plan a garden, designing and making beds and borders, etc. It goes on and on and on and on and on. But interestingly, talking of wild meadows, there is this, wild and woodland gardens. So I flicked to that today, 147, and fascinatingly, it doesn't reference at all a wildflower meadow. So this is 1931 he's writing. I suspect they didn't have to worry about it because this country, England, has lost something like 97% of wildflower meadows which were in abundance since the war. So I think it's like 1945 or something like that. Uh, the date is around about that in history that since then we've lost 97%, largely due to construction and commercial farming techniques that were encouraged after the war and never repealed. Um, and so I don't suppose there's any reason for him to encourage or suggest that you would have a wildflower meadow, because back in 1931, John Coots and other people would have enjoyed them. However, he does talk about wild and woodland gardens and it says plants suitable for the wild and woodland gardens. He's a big fan of bluebells, mentions them at least twice in that short little paragraph before. And it ranges from Achelia. I love Achelia. Um, that's the sort of, um, although it stinks, doesn't it? The yellow one does particularly. Of we. Um, Aquilegia, Anemone. I'm not going to go through them all, don't worry. Um, Astilbes, all the way through to Lupins. Um, peonies, Galanthus, obviously that's snowdrops, um, Fritillarius, 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 uh, Crown Imperial Fritillaries, Formium tenaxes, um, Rhododendrons, Thelictrum, so there's, and tulips, there's a real good amount to, to choose in there, and I'm a bit torn, because I didn't plan on a massive garden project. I wanted a small garden this time. You know, with the farm, I transformed an acre of grass into bee-friendly gardens and pollinator-friendly planting. And here I've just sort of started getting a bit carried away. And just yesterday when I looked out, I thought, these borders are massive. I've not even created the border around the patio yet, which is quite a big patio. And the big borders that, um, that literally border either side of the lawn. I mean, they're five foot wide. So, I mean, that's going to take a heck of a lot of planting. And I don't have that many plants that I bought from the farm. I've got a lot in pots. But what I'm reassured by is that I have got things like verbena. Um, and I have got some of the things that actually John mentions in Wild and Woodland Gardens. But then I don't know whether I should add to the Wild and Woodland area because that would be really cute, wouldn't it, to look out through the wild flower meadow and in the woodland area see pockets of, like, Verbena balearensis, <laughs> you know, the lovely tall uh, green stems with the purple flowers. Oh, I'm watching a missile thrush. She is loving it, gang, let me tell you. 
I've never seen a missile thrush before, I don't think. It's quite a big British bird with speckled chest, but she, and she hops everywhere. Like It's like she can't walk. It's fly or hop. That's it. It's only two things with her. And what's really cute is she's using, obviously, there's so much exposed ground now that she's stealing all the worms. Um, oh, interestingly, a point, uh, we'll come back to this another day, but I did notice it, John in his index talks about the lawn, right? Check this out. The lawn, its layout and maintenance. Uh, constructing the lawn, sowing seed, turfing, mowing, rolling, edging, feeding, watering, weeding. That's all work fine. Removing worms. So I can't wait to see what is beef is with worms in lawns. I thought it was all all right. Maybe they were very obsessed back then about having ones without extremely tiny holes that you can't see unless you're around on your hands and knees. I don't know. Or maybe worms are bad for lawns. Who knew? But I'm having... I'm going to lay a bit of turf uh, because I think a grass path through the wildflower meadow would be nicer. Anyway, so that's the sort of, that's the plot, that's the, the project. And I'm using Everyday Gardening as my guide for advice and also to sort of put to the test whether or not anything's changed. Because the border at the lawn, I'm going to use John's planting scheme at the very beginning of the contents. He talks about... So there's a chapter on flowering and ornamental shrubs and trees. I'll have a look at that, see what I've got. Uh, and I'm going to talk to you about this in a second because I'm doing this on a budget, intentionally. There's a herbaceous border. He loves a water and a bog garden, a rock garden, flower garden, etc., etc. So I'm going to take sort of little bits and bobs from his advice that he gives in here with regards to what flowers to use and plant them up. And I don't know, do you reckon anybody will know? Will they, will they walk in and think, gosh, this is a very dated garden, or this is a classic garden from the 1930s. Or whether people will go, oh, it's a nice garden, I recognise all those plants, and, and that's that. It'll be interesting to see what it turns out like, because I suspect, I mean, so far, I've not seen anything radically different in this book. Uh, but I will tell you, he doesn't know what he's on about. So, these hedges arrive, right? 200 hedgerow whips arrive and of course they arrived at the wrong bloody time i was doing other stuff in the middle of painting ceilings and stuff when these bare roots arrive 200 of them so i'm rushing around trying to find buckets and um i found hiding in a hedge almost buried um I was just wandering around aimlessly really looking for things in hedges you know as you do uh, and found this old water butt with no holes in get that well, it did have a hole in it, but I thought well, I can screw a little um, cap in there. Um, so I ended up covered. I was literally crawling into this old, <laughs> this old quite big watering uh, butt, water butt uh, to screw in this little cap at the bottom so that I could fill it up. Filled it up, chucked in there. So every bucket and trug and anything that would hold water, I filled it up with water, chucked these whips in and set about planting these hedgerows. So it took me three days, complete days, from kind of 8.30 in the morning through to five, six at night, to dig 200 holes, because of course you've got to measure it out and stuff. Now, I did, of course, before I do anything in the garden, refer to everyday gardening, and John talks in here, funnily enough, there's a whole section on hedging, hedges, fences and walls, right? So he suggests, 157, let me just show you this. There's a whole section on how to plan a garden as well, but maybe me skip that. <laughs> Probably would have helped if I stuck with it for a bit. Anyway, so forming the hedge. He talks about, obviously, levelling it out. Okay, so uh, that's fine. Did that. And uh, he also suggests digging a trench. Now, I thought, 
I'm not digging a trench, mate. John, we've only just met. I have an amount of respect for you, but not enough to, um, you know, take you word for word. I thought, well, you're suggesting I dig a trench. But I cannot dig 75 metres of trench. I'll just dig holes, stick them in. It's going to be fine. So what I found is a trench, if you're going to dig, um, if you're going to create your own little hedge. Now, of course, my hedge is purposeful. It is there to replace a fence and create some privacy and security for the garden because, you know, everybody loves, um, you know, naked patio time, right? And I'm sure my neighbours might not necessarily want to see that. So, you know, if you go out there for a spot of lunch and think, I think this is probably a naked sandwich today, then, you know, I can do that, as we all do, right? Right? So, I thought, well, I'll... Let me just move. Hang on. Squeaky chair. So I thought, well, I'll measure down there and uh, then work out how many hedges I need. And John suggests, if you want a nice, full, bushy um, hedge, that it should be um, about six per metre. So ten inches apart... Um, if you want a very thick hedge, two rows, 10 inches apart, right? So I thought well, that's, that's easy. I can do that. So I measured one line nice and straight with a piece of string and two pegs and eyed it up and thought, okay, that's in line with a bit of the existing fence post near the front of the house. Then I measured 10 inches um, to the left of it and put another bit of string. And then I got a piece of wood and measured 10 inch increments in sixes. So I simply, you know, lined that up against the string so that I could use that as my guide, looked for the first mark on the piece of wood, dug a hole there, chucked in some soil, some compost, sorry, popped the um, root ball in, which had been soaking in the water, covered it all up, trod it in lightly, put a bit more compost on top for some mulch, and then looked at where the next mark was on the ruler, came back to the other line, so it was 10 inches diagonally apart from it, and did that 200 times, basically. Now, when I ran out of string, I simply moved the whole thing on again. So I would put the peg where the other, where the last hedgerow whip was, run it out, eye it up, put it in. And I noticed, I don't know, I must have done it about 80. And then I noticed at about 87, there was a slight kink. And of course, what I found is that when you put a plant in, every single plant, every single one of these hedge row whips, and they're quite tall. Some of them are a metre, some of them a bit more than a metre, 1.5 metre. Some of them are a bit shorter, maybe just under a metre. So they're, you know, they've got numerous twigs hanging off them. Some of them are in buds. Some of them have got some leaves because I've got some really nice um, beech trees. After so many, you can't see the original place that you started. So you're relying on every single section that you do to be straight so that the next section is straight. So I realised that actually John's advice of digging a trench was spot on because if you dig a trench, well, there's nothing in the way, is there? You can see that that line is dead straight and then you can put your hedges in. So if you do it, I would definitely recommend digging the trench. Uh, That was a mistake because it just makes sure. Now, as it is... My hedge, I think, is pretty straight. And because it's going to be a dense hedge, and because I'm planting them as whips, I can actually, you know, make sure that when I trim them, I trim them in. 
Uh, in fact, that reminds me what I haven't done is he does suggest that once you've planted them, let me have a little look here. He suggests that you should, um, head, most hedges are best trimmed twice a year in May and again in August or September. But he does suggest that when you first plant them, you should take off, what was it, six inches or something at the very beginning. Six to ten inches must be trimmed from the top of the newly planted hedge when the buds begin to swell in spring. Um, evergreens are best cut back at planting time. So that's interesting, isn't it? Water well after putting the shrubs in and once a week in dry weather until the roots are established. So what I've done is I ran, because it's a long... Um, it's quite a long space to go out and stand there and water. And I found that when I first did it, I got to about hedge 19 and desperately needed a wee. And that carried on. So I thought, I oh, know, I'll put a little drip hose in. And if you check out the YouTube channel, which you can do for the whole of this series, I'm documenting all of the stuff that's going on in the garden for series four on my YouTube channel. So you can go to YouTube, search that Jez Rose, or probably just Jez Rose, actually. There's lots of different playlists on there and you want series four roots, wings and other things. And that's where I'm uploading my almost daily uh, video diary blog of the different things I've been doing in the garden. But I'm also going to record some instructional videos. So there is a video going up about how to lay your hedge. I'm going to do it step by step and I'll do the same with the meadow as well. But I tell you what, it was so flipping rewarding. I lost an awful lot of weight. Like if you want to get fit or you're thinking, oh, I want to, you know, lose a little bit of weight or something, I can highly recommend <laughs> planting native hedgerows. Crikey, just fell off me. And it was just glorious, although one day I did it with my top off because I was getting really hot and the uh, sun was out and it was glorious. It was a really, really, really lovely bank holiday weekend and uh, I burnt my back quite badly because I just got so into it. That's the thing with gardening, isn't it? It just, honestly, it just sucks you in. It really transforms how you think about stuff. I, and I love that about gardening, that you start something... And then you move on to something else and something else, something else, something else, which is exactly why I have the peg. Now, I haven't used the peg yet. You may remember that I clipped my to-do list to myself, uh, to my braces with a peg so that I don't get too carried away. But the minute they're just sort of one big task at a time um, to... Oh, there's two missile thrushes. I wonder if that's Mr. and Mrs. Missile Thrush. Or whether they look... The hopping thing seems to be not individual. It seems to be a species-specific thing because... They just bounce everywhere. Well, they're very pretty. Get yourself on Google and have a little look at missile thrush. Lovely bird. Really unusual to see such a big bird in the garden as well. Oh, my God. Talking of big birds, opposite us on the street outside the front of the house, there are these big trees and there are ravens resting. Uh, resting. Well, they are resting, I suppose. They're nesting, roosting in the tree. And one of them landed on the bird feeder the other day and frightened the life out of me. It is huge. I mean, it's like having your very own eagle or elephant bird or something. Absolutely massive. I don't know. I haven't seen it on the seeds before, so maybe they just were so tiny or they couldn't be bothered to uh, peck at them for ages to get their amount they needed. Oh, I'm just having a little sip of water. Sorry, gang. So anyway, that's the hedges. Now, <clears throat> the big thing is this wild meadow. Now, as I said, I um, it's partly because the lawn was so bad and partly because I thought, you know what, I, I can't take on another massive garden with loads and loads and loads of stuff. And I've always wanted a big, proper wild meadow. 
And I did think, well, you know what? It doesn't have to stay Wild Meadow, does it? It's a nice big space. If I want to end up doing something else with it, I can. And I think I might mow a little space in there, have a bench. quite like the idea of being sat in the middle of a Wild Meadow to do some of my writing and stuff. Maybe we can record some of these in there as well. That would be nice. Um, so I consulted Everyday Gardening and John you know, gave me these ideas of different things you could put in there but one of the things that I wanted to do with this garden project and this series is to talk about gardening uh, on a budget and also to really really drive home the beauty of native species because we import a lot and I'm seeing a lot more people importing well we were until Brexit because now it's an absolute nightmare to import anything from uh, elsewhere but we were seeing a lot of people importing things from abroad uh, and a lot of unusual species and I can understand that of course you know it sort of sexies up your garden a little bit gives you something different but from what I'm sort of beginning to pick up from this book is that it's more about gardening for you and I wonder whether things like Instagram and Facebook and the influence that social media has on us wanting to be the best version of ourselves but possibly even somebody else or a version of ourselves that other people, you know, prefer. I wonder whether actually we've started gardening for other people. You know, have we started gardening so that we can show off our gardens? So that we can take pictures and say, hey, I've got something different. And I thought, I don't want to get into that trap. I want to create a garden that almost tells me what it wants to be. And I was... I realise very fortunate that I have inherited a garden that had an established wild area that I could have completely ripped up, could have done something else with. There were lots of things I thought about creatively that I could do. And I thought, well, do you know what? You seem really happy. There's a deer there that comes and has a little wander around. And I don't know whether that's a little den that she's made at the back there. I'm not quite sure. Um, there are loads of little birds' nests in there and lots of wildlife. I'm going to check out the wildlife camera later, let you know what's going on. And I thought, you know what, maybe with John's help, I can use native species and we can see what have we got without importing stuff that's flipping gorgeous. Right? So that's what I'm doing. There is, in this book, Everyday Gardening, nothing so far... And I haven't read it all yet. I'm sort of reading the bits that um, I need to. And then when I get a bit of time, I have a read around other subjects in here. But there is nothing in here about why. It's all technical. So there's, there's nothing in here about, about why you would want to garden, to encourage you to do everyday gardening about that gloriously meditative kind of state that you get into when you're gardening, even if it's really hard work. About the fact that time just flies by because you're enjoying it so much, because it's so restorative, because it's so peaceful, because it gives your body the things that now scientifically we know your body benefits from when your hands are in soil or in contact with nature. Those huge releases of endorphins and alpha brain waves and oxytocin, all of those wonderful things that happen to our body when we're outside and interacting with it. And that really struck me as interesting because, of course, 
people would have understood that back then. John would have known that back then. But to leave it entirely out of a book and make it only technical seems a little strange for me. I mean, the first major study into the impact of nature on human health, well-being and behaviour wasn't till the 70s. But that's not to say that there wouldn't be something to say, do you know what, this particular garden is a you know, beautiful place to, I don't know, get away from the hustle and bustle or, or to chill out or to, I don't know, I don't know. But you know what, maybe that's because they didn't need it as much as we do now. What if that's the case? And actually more than ever we need our gardens or our outside spaces. And even if you've got pots or a patio or a window, you can have a window box. It's just something about being close to those shapes and what nature offers us. Now, so the wildflower prep has been hard. I'm not going to lie. Here's the thing. I'm going to record a video about um, preparing for wildflower meadows. I've got quite a lot of experience of working with wildflowers because at the farm, obviously, I created a number of wildflower areas for the bees. And because we were the world's first carbon neutral honey farm, we got quite a lot of press and I had quite a lot of people asking for uh, advice and guidance on creating wildflower areas for pollinators. Um, So I've designed and consulted and helped out with other people creating much larger areas than we had on the farm. I mean, acres and acres and acres of it, hectares of it, in fact. But... What seems to happen is that people um, create a little bit of space uh, and then lob down some seeds and then water them a bit and forget about them. Or they uh, cut the lawn as low as it possibly can go and then sprinkle the seeds in and then water them and forget about them. Or they might put them in a pot and forget about them and then sort of say, well, it didn't really work out. Now, I don't want to put you off creating a wildflower meadow because I think it's utterly brilliant. I think you could mow a couple of strips out of your lawn and it and replace it with wildflower meadow. I think you could replace an entire border with wildflower meadow. Um, or you could, I don't know, you could rip up your entire lawn and create wildflower meadow because nothing to stop you from like I'm going to do, mow out some areas that are more usable. But here's the thing. You have to scalp all of that grass away. So the top layer of grass has to go, including the roots. You don't want to dig down, but it's literally that top kind of, I don't know, quarter of an inch, maybe. You're just going to scalp off. You could do it with a spade. You could do it with a turf cutter if you've got a nice, nice flat lawn. But it's got to go. You've got to have just soil. When you've got that soil, you then need to rake it. Uh, and really gently, yeah, the best rake to use is not a leaf rake, which is the wiry ones that are slightly bent at the end. It's um, like a standard garden rake, you know, so it's a flat piece of iron, 90 degree sort of broad spikes. And you're not going to chuck it and dig it and, you know, like drag it through the lawn. It's just gently to ruffle up that top surface and to, um, uh, what's that, level, that's what I'm looking for, to kind of level the top surface of the soil. I'll show you some pictures. I've got some before and after, and obviously I'll do this video as well to show you exactly. And you can see the difference straight away. There aren't trodden down areas. It's not flat. It is very clearly sort of slightly fluffy, but not ploughed. And it's then that you sprinkle the wildflower seed on um, quite densely, actually. I, you know, I've always been surprised about how much seed you can pack in there. 
then you water it, so you don't cover it, you just water it. And then, of course, it needs covering with something. Not soil, because the seeds just lay flat on the top of the ground. But the birds will come down, the squirrels will come down. If you've got deer, they'll kind of scuffle around. So you want some kind of uh, horticultural fleecing or some sort of wind netting or something, garden netting, you know, you use for birds and butterflies on your fruit bushes or your trees or something, something that covers it. And this is where it gets a little bit faffy and can get a bit expensive. But all of these things that I'm buying for the garden that I don't have right now and that I can't get elsewhere, I'm just going to sell. I'll sell them on eBay and someone else can buy them. Uh, or on Facebook or something, and someone else who's planning a wild meadow can benefit from the same thing. So, um, you know, it, it kind of gets recycled round. You then water them every kind of couple of days, just gently. You know, a little sort of sprinkler water is what you want really on it. If you flood them with a hose, they'll wash away or they'll clump together or they'll sit in pools of water and rot. So a nice light sprinkle is what you're looking for every couple of days to keep them moist. Um, and you want to keep that light watering going um, it doesn't need to be long, like 20 minutes or something on each little patch of where you've got them. But you want to do that sort of every day or so, particularly if it's dry. If it rains, obviously, you can skip a day and keep that going uh, until you start to see the shoots coming out. Then, of course, you can uncover them, keep them watered just like you would do with anything that's growing. Now, the first year of Wildflower Meadow, the best thing is to expect an anticlimax because... They just don't grow as beautifully as they look. But it's only the same as uh, you look in any gardening magazine or online and you see like a little picture of a bush, don't you? And say, here's the new Budlier Suzanne. And you think, oh, gosh, look at that. There's like a million flowers on it. And it says triple blooms, our biggest bloomer ever. Order now, free postage. And get in for this season, um, yada, yada, yada. You know, more blooms in level and what to do with ideal for patio pots. And you think, gosh, that's amazing. And when you get the delivery of it, you get this little plastic pot with a stick sticking out of it with some leaves on it. And you think, well, that couldn't be further from the lovely thing I've seen online or on the. And that's sort of the same with wild meadows as well, because they just take a while to establish that first year. They'll be a bit patchy. And then the flowers obviously start to split and divide. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, well, not split and divide. Obviously, that's not the technical um, uh, definition for what they're doing, is it? They're spreading, I suppose, self-seeding. Uh, and then, of course, every year it gets better and better and better. And then you cut it all down sort of late autumn time. And just like anything else you're going to do in the garden, that wonderful period of repair and regeneration. And the, all of the plant's energy goes into its roots. It grows stronger for next year, comes up more blooms next year. So what I'm looking at, you know, in John's book, he talks about having a flower garden, as in a cutting garden. Well, I won't need one of those because I'll have a wild flower meadow that I can pick flowers from. And I'll have freshly cut wild flowers in the house, which I'm really looking forward to. I might. I've started experimenting with some willow, some pussy willow and two other different varieties of willow. I might plant that into the, the bund at the side of the house because where all of the soil and the lawn has been pushed to one side um it saved money from you know taking it off site but it also helped fill in some gaps underneath the bare conifers it's just there well if i just leave it it's just gonna you know grow grass isn't it because it might be quite nice to have a, a little willow farm so 
I've got a load rooting in some water. As soon as they've finished uh, rooting, so you know when the roots start to come out and get a bit stronger, they'll go in some compost and the tops of the sticks will get cut off. And then they'll grow in some little pots. And then when the roots come out of the bottom of the little pots, they'll go into the ground. And I think I'm going to put them in that bund there because it will be, be nice to see them sort of develop um, and start a little little willow farm. And all the time I'm trying to do everything on a budget. So just yesterday was so fun. Because all of the area had been cleared by the digger, while the digger for the wildflower meadow, while it was here, I had him dig some great big holes as well. And uh, for trees, because some of the trees were in massive pots that I had bought from the farm. So I've got those in the ground and it is utterly, honestly, it is amazing to see. I think we've only got magnolia in there. There's a magnolia Susan, which is like a bush. From memory, I think it's like a purple flower. That's there sort of to the corner of where the patio will be. There's two Magnolia grandiflora, which are the ones with the white flowers, evergreen. Uh, and they look fabulous. There's another bush over there. I forget what that one's called. A bit like the Suzanne one. That needs to go in. And there's one more. Um, uh, one more. There. That looks a bit grandiflora as well. Maybe it is. More of a sort of shrub rather than a... Anyway, so they're in. I've got some other trees to put in as well, some other pots to go in. They're going to go in some of the borders to fill some of those borders out a little bit. And that bit, honestly, just being out there with your hands in your soil. And, and honestly, gang, if you could see it, well, you'll see it on the YouTube channel. It's so bleak. Because it's just soil everywhere. You know, there's no... It was nice to edge the lawn and edge the new borders of the lawn and mow that so I could sort of see what I'd got. I tidied up a um, Lonicera bush. Um, but it's just beginning slowly to take shape. And every time you put something in, it changes it again. You think, yeah. And I spoke on Instagram this week about how gardening does that, doesn't it? You, you can just do a tiny little bit. You look back and you think, you know what, if anybody walked in now, they wouldn't know any different. They wouldn't say, gosh, look at that beautifully weeded, you know, border or bed or whatever. They wouldn't know. But you do. And because it's that tiny bit neater or, I don't know, more looked after or because you've fed a tree or something, it's those little things, isn't it, that really make us feel so flipping good about it all. So what I've got this week is a lot of planning for seeds. And uh, I'll talk to you in a second about those. But also, I'm looking at repurposing because all these trees going in pots, I've now got all these massive pots. Now, I'll probably sell some of them. I don't need all of them anymore. Although my friend was here yesterday and she did encourage me. She said, but some of those were lovely outside the front of the house. Why don't you find something else to put in them? And I thought, this is great. Every gardener needs a friend who encourages them to buy more plants. <laughs> uh, so I think I'm going to uh, beg, borrow and steal some plants from other people. This is a thing I haven't done nearly enough of. And I forgot, you know, when I was at the farm, I was forever giving away plants because, you know, you take a cutting and it would self-set and you think, oh, that's, oh, I should give that to somebody because that's a plant. Or you'd accidentally propagate some stuff or you'd grow too many of some things. You'd get carried away. I'm terrible at that. I always grow like a million of something. You only need the one, but you think, well, while I'm here, just in case. Because you never know. There's always a, a failure, isn't there, of some seeds. I mean, out there, I've got about nine fig trees. Lord only knows what I'm going to do in nine fig trees. But so my point is I'm going to ask people, you know, have you got an area of your garden where you're digging something up? Have you got a plant you don't like anymore? Have you got a plant that you're going to, that you're split and divided or you've got a cutting? 
And I'm going to see what I can put into the garden that's native, ideally. I really want to champion native plants wherever possible. Now, there are going to be some exceptions, obviously, because I've bought plants from uh, the house that I was at before. So those are my exceptions. But anything coming in, I'm going to try and cultivate beds that, that naturally you know, champion native plants, just like all of the hedgerow. Uh, and it, oh, do you know what? I'm looking out now. Those missile thrushes are having the time of their life. But there are plants, there are plants, there aren't, well, there are plants, but not many. <laughs> there are birds that are darting in and out of the hedgerow. It's flipping glorious to see. And isn't it amazing how a little bird can land on a hedgerow that's like the tiniest little stick and it doesn't move? So I was to show how light those birds are. Oh, that one moved. Oh, that's a robin. He's had quite a lot to eat by the looks of it. And that's bouncing up and down. I shall call him Tubbs. Um, there are... Uh, four or five birds now and they're pecking away at the bottom and they sit inside the hedgerows just lovely to see and when we first got here actually no wildlife at all every now and again you'd see birds flying over the top but there was nothing for them now there's loads of soil for them to peck worms out there are more trees you know there are cleared areas and of course you've got all these hedgerows so i just cannot wait to see more and more and more and more and more birds um anyway so <clears throat> Because of the patchy, <laughs> you tell them a bit out of practice with this. We're going back to wildflower meadow. Because of the patchiness that happens with wildflower meadows that first year, I'm going to fill in some of the gaps. And there's a sort of cheats way to do this. And the cheats way is um, to get some seeds uh, that grow quickly, and therefore you can you can get some really good cover for the first year. Now it's not quite the wildflower meadow that you were looking for, but it buys you that bit of time that it doesn't look quite so bare. So for example, um, this was really cute. When Marley died and we had him cremated, the vet or the, the crematorium sent me a little card saying, you know, here are the ashes of Marley. And they sent me some forget-me-not um, seeds. Now, forget-me-not, are those tiny little blue um, uh, flowers with the little green, light green leaves that spread everywhere, right? They are proper prolific. And normally I'm not a big fan, but you know what? For nostalgia, I think, and I've got the space, and I've got these two woodland areas, because down the side between the office and the workshop, there's this sort of scrub land uh, but you know, there's a wild black currant in there. There's a gorgeous cherry tree. Uh, there's some really lovely um, uh, elderflower and an alder and a cobnut. And I think yeah, this is screaming out to be left and for me just to add. There's some little bluebells coming up. So I'm going to put little woodland plants in there. And these forget-me-nots, I think, will go brilliantly in there. Now, I've also got the vet sent me some poppy seeds. And I think that's lovely. It says, scatter these poppy seeds to remember your loved one, which I think is a really cute touch as well. So those poppy seeds are going to go in the wildflower meadow. And I'm going to get some other flower seeds, uh, some other poppy seeds as well. Um, 20 seconds, gang, because I've just got over here is what they are. And I've sort of created a scheme. So I'm going to get some poppy papaver um, latifolium, which is, I guess, your standard one of your standard big red poppies. Now I did a test at the farm where I took a vegetable trug, you know, like a raised bed, and I put only poppy seeds in there and it went berserk. It was a massive, huge, massive, huge, 
heap up dense tray of poppy seeds. It looked incredible. So I'm going to do that here. I'm going to get tons of poppy seeds, scatter those all over the place because uh, I love, love, love poppies. Um, I'm going to put some chamomile in there as well for a bit of green foliage. Some chives. Chives, of course, are great for spreading. You know, they, they uh, and you can split and divide them into from tiny little clumps. So I've got a couple of chive plants. Again, difficult um, because do I want the chive plants in the herb garden or the wildflower meadow? Do I put them in the little woodland area? Do I even put them in the, the bed? And I think the answer here is that I pick a couple of plants that are repeated to just join the garden together. Because what I have done is, you might have heard people on um, TV shows and uh, in books and stuff talking about borrowing tree lines and borrowing eye lines. Well, in our garden, the very, very back of the garden are very, very, very tall conifers that do need to be um, reduced in height a little bit. And then these eight or so trees in the woodland, and then nothing all the way to the house, apart from one little bush in the lawn. So I've started to put trees in, um, in sort of opposite corners and stagger the line of them all the way back to the house so that it just draws all of that in. So it, your eye picks up, you know, it sees the bush to your left that I've just planted and then it picks up and sees one on the right it's a bit further away and then diagonally to the left there's now a very tall that's probably what is that 12 foot standard magnolia and then there's a bush and then to the right there's a, an established tree and then you're into the woodland area and it draws your your eye in well you can do the same with planting obviously so I think I'll pick up either color so I might put some of the verbena in the woodland area uh, and also in uh, maybe some chives in this wildflower area um, and then also in the herb garden so that the purples you know sort of knit everything together gonna get some bronze fennel because I adore bronze fennel lovely gentle leafy bits tall delicate flowers um, and some santalina as well so those five the bronze fennel chives chamomile santalina and the poppies are going to be a, a nice sort of core mix of plants but this is my secret weapon and I have spoken about this so many times this is phacelia otherwise known as purple tansy and phacelia is one of the honeybee's most favorite plants flowers it's wild it's native it's got um very fluffy quite bright green foliage, quite quite a lot of it as well. And these very delicate, but also little bit spiky looking, but they're not spiky, they're soft, um, uh, purple flowers, like bursts at the top. Really, really, really pretty. I do like borage. Borage does spread quite prolifically, although, you know, Phacelia does get around a bit as well. But I've got the space here, that's okay. And the nice thing about Phacelia is twofold. Number one, it's used as a green manure. Now, one of the reasons it's used as a green manure is because it's so prolific. You get it in the ground, within a week, or within two to three days, you've got germination. Within a week, you've got green. And within about 10 days or so, you've got flowers. It's pretty instant. And, and it's thick and fast set. So I can get quite a bit out of there now. I've never covered Phacelia. So I'm going to do a little patch test out there now, straight after this recording, get it watered and see what grows. Because if the birds aren't taking it, that's going to be ideal because I can get that out there now, get it growing 
and maybe sow in some of the wildflower meadow around it because that would save me about 300 quids worth of fabric to cover um, all of the wildflower meadow. So I'm going to go out there and try that. But I just love Phacelia. It's it's a great plant. And of course, what you can do is before it flowers, because the uh, nitrogen and uh, something else, well, I'll look it up, uh, levels in the plant change when it flowers. But if it remains green, just like mustard and a lot of the clovers, you can dig it into the soil so it gives it this instant nitrogen fix. And that's what a lot of farmers do with those sorts of crops. You know, they sow them, they grow really quickly before they flower, they cut them all down and dig them into the soil to enrich the soil more. So this also will not only give me, it doesn't work at all as a cut flower for Celia, it dies pretty much instantly from experience. But what it does do is it gives me beautiful ground cover straight away. It can be a much denser wildflower meadow while I wait for the proper seeds to kick in over the next sort of year. Um, but also it will give me great manure for the garden. I'll be able to just dig it into the flower beds and, and enrich that soil slowly. So those are the plans. And it is flipping gorgeous. One of the upcycle things I'm doing at the minute is uh, I'm just about to empty. Uh, gosh, it's been on, hasn't it? Look at this, it's nearly an hour, gang. I've got to give up. We've got to stop. Crikey, I'm sorry. Um, but also, you want to check out YouTube. It is, <clears throat> it's, it's good. I'm enjoying it. I'm enjoying showing you, and I'm going to do some, uh, some how-to videos. Um, so one of the trees I'm just about to dig up is a beech tree. They're in these big, big oak barrels. They used to be oak um, whiskey fermenting barrels. And so I'm going to have five, I think, of these left over. And I had a brilliant idea. I'm going to turn them into a water feature. I'm not quite sure what it's going to look like yet, but I've got barrels that hold water. They, to me, seem like the ideal places to put lilies and to put one of those you know, solar pump things uh, and have a nice little sound of trickling water and something else in there going on as well. It has, as ever, been a flipping joy and a pleasure you being here. If you're not on Instagram, come join me. Instagram, um, you want to search for at Roots Wings Podcast. Podcast, only one. Uh, there's only one. And if you would like to, you can head on over, buy me a coffee. There's this thing called coffee, ko-fi.com, ko-fi.com forward slash roots. And you will be able to donate a uh, whatever you want. You can say, oh, I quite enjoyed that jazz here. Here's a pound. And all of those little bits and bobs I'm going to collect are going to go to Green Fingers Charity this year. Um, so that's our podcast charity of the year. They do an incredible thing. Green Fingers is a charity that creates gardens for terminally ill children and their families. So they've got spaces to spend the last moments of their life together, enjoying the incredibly healing and restorative benefits that nature gives us that we take for granted, really. Um, as I was laid out there yesterday, <laughs> literally, I've been digging and raking all day and my body was so achy and tired. It said, OK, enough. I got a cup of tea and it went, no, no, I don't want tea. I'm not letting you fob me off. I need to rest. I literally just slumped on the ground in my gardening trousers and my gardening coat and my boots. And I just laid on there watching the birds, having a little bit of a rest. And I thought, my word, my word, we're lucky. Thank you for joining me for Series 4 of Roots, Wings and Other Things. I will see you next time. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss uh, the little notification so you know when the next episode comes out. Join me on Instagram. I want to hear all of your ideas for what I can do in this garden. I'm going to share some more um, <coughs> of the 
contents from John Coots's Everyday Gardening book, a couple of little readings as well. We're going to do some Instagram lives and there's a project coming very soon, including the official launch of the Cutting Club that we did a beta launch of last year. Uh, there's a little gang of people that I'm about to get in touch with to test some of the mailing. But this one was a bit long. Well done if you've stuck this far. <clears throat> and I hope you will have a wonderful time in your garden while you're waiting to hear all about mine. Gang, I will see you next time. Come join me on Instagram at that Jez Rose. The podcast is at Roots Wings Podcast. And don't forget uh, ko-fi.com forward slash roots, coffee.com forward slash roots. If you want to donate, um, you would be more than welcome. Have a lovely day. Be kind. Love you lots. Bye-bye.